This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we have a special feature. Fortress America is crumbling, thanks in part to Donald Trump. For that, we'll speak with Alfred McCoy. But first... John Nichols has been following the recent Democratic victories in some state legislative races. They may provide a preview of the midterm elections in November. Trump Watch starts right now. Trump's approval ratings have been sinking even in the states he won in 2016. If the election were held today, he'd probably lose not just the popular vote, but also the electoral vote. However, he's not on the ballot this year. What matters now is who else is on the ballot. The 2018 midterm elections will be a critical test for the president's Republican Party. And if patterns hold, they could see a turn in the electoral math sufficient to check and balance the president in Washington while we get rid of some of his allies in the states. How are we doing with this project? For a report, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent. His most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. We reached him today in Madison. John, welcome back. I'm delighted to be with you. So where should we start? You're in Madison. Let's start with Wisconsin. There are some revealing signs of the growing power of our side in Wisconsin. Well, here's the interesting thing about about how political coverage plays out in the United States today. And it's very different than how it used to be. You remember, I'm, uh, somebody's written a lot of books about journalism and media and the change in, in the industries. Uh, it used to be that uh, most of the coverage of what happened in America came from America. Now, it primarily comes from a few blocks in Washington, D.C., now, Washington, D.C. is still America, but there's a lot of the country beyond those few blocks. And here's the interesting thing. It used to be that special elections for state legislative seats around the country were often very big deals, seen as, as real bellwethers, especially as they started to pile up for one party. Well, there was one in Wisconsin on the week of uh, the first anniversary of, of Trump's inauguration that got more attention than most, but didn't get you know, quite the attention it should have. And that was in a state Senate seat in the western part of Wisconsin. Now, Trump carried Wisconsin by 22,000 votes. That provided him with essential electoral votes to prevail in the Electoral College. He piled those votes up in western and northern Wisconsin. This state Senate district cuts right through that region. It's been a Republican district for decades. Um, and Trump won it in 2016 by 17 points. So it was a good solid win for him there. Uh, again, critical votes to him carrying the whole state. On the Tuesday before the anniversary of Trump's uh, inauguration, they had a special election up there. It was called by Scott Walker, the Republican governor. Everybody was assuming it would go very well for the Republicans. They were running a state legislator who had been elected in much of the district already. And he was running against a woman who had never run for partisan office. She was a local school board member, a medical examiner, uh, and she ran a good campaign. No question of that. But um, she didn't just beat 
the Republican, this Democratic woman, uh, Patty Schachner, uh, she had a 37-point swing Wow! from the previous election. That means that, that she won by 11 points, but the previous Republican had won by 26 points. They had them together. You get a 37-point swing. That was so epic. That was such a big win that even Scott Walker, the Republican governor, in a rare moment of honesty, said, whoa, that's a wake-up call. Those are his own words for Wisconsin Republicans. And here's the significant thing. What, was, what occurred in western Wisconsin uh, in mid-January of 2018 wasn't the first time that a Democrat had won a, a tightly contested, supposedly tough state legislative race around the country for an open seat. It was the 34th time. And again and again and again, Republicans have won or lost seats that they've held often for a long time in places where Trump had won. And overwhelmingly, the winners of these seats have been women, many of them drawn into politics by their fury frankly, or anger or whatever word we want to use, uh, frustration with Donald Trump. And uh, this is a big deal. It's a, it's a story that flies a little under the radar. But uh, what people need to understand is what uh, Carolyn Fiedler, who's one of the better kind of watch people on all this, she follows state house politics very, very closely. And she said, people need to start waking up to the facts that Democrats keep winning these Special elections in heavily gerrymandered Republican seats where Trump won just a year and a half ago. So I'd say it's a big deal. So let me just review the numbers here. It's not just Patty Schachner in St. Croix County of uh, Wisconsin. You say there are 34 Democrats who have flipped states in state legislatures in the year since Trump took office. 22 of them have been women. That is pretty amazing. And what about the level above the state legislatures? Well, we, we have a little bit of, of news in the, out of Alabama, yeah. the Doug Jones victory in a special election there. That's somewhat consequential, I'd say. Yes. And, and then also, uh, if we look around the country, what we're seeing, and remember, what I'm talking about is special elections, and these are unique elections, yeah. and they're for seats that, in some cases, have been, you know, seats where very closely competitive seats, seats where Democrats have done well and held them, seats where Republicans have done well and held them. But what Carolyn Fiedler and a lot of other people are pointing out is there's a whole bunch of seats where Trump won, and now they're, they're flipping over this, this one in Western Wisconsin being a very good example. Uh, and that's really getting an awful lot of people excited about running for office. And again, this story or several of the stories I've written of late have been about women who have broken through. And here's the interesting thing. Emily's List has a running uh, charting of all the women who have announced that they are in or preparing to run for offices in 2018. It's up to 26,000. 26,000. 26,000. These are for legislative races, gubernatorial races, and there are huge numbers getting into gubernatorial races, Senate races, House races, local races for 
county offices, for school boards, for all sorts of posts around the country. But as the folks from Emily's List are telling us, it's just unprecedented. They had to knock a wall out in their office, you know, literally open up a bigger space just for managing all of the, the folks who are coming in saying, you know, look, we're, we're running, we're interested, we want training, we want ideas, we want, you know, help for putting it together. There's something amazing going on out there. And, you know, the Wisconsin result is evidence of, A, the phenomenon, a woman who had never held partisan office, who, who, by the way, her son lost a race against four years ago against the guy that this year she beat. Great. Um, wow. And so, you know, I mean, it's a tough turf, right? Yeah. It's a Republican-leaning turf. And, but she was, she was new to running for partisan office. She came in and, uh, and, and prevailed. And I, I want to emphasize, this is a twofold thing going on here, John. It's really important. These folks who are stepping up uh, are often inspired to run by their frustration with Trump, but they don't just run against Trump. What they're doing is they are running kind of new model campaigns with a lot more grassroots, a lot stronger messaging. Uh, they are often very impassioned men and women who are coming into these races. And, uh, and I think they're, they're breaking things open. You know, they're, they're running races that Democrats may have passed over and not paid as much attention to in the past. And what they're proving is that if you step up and if you've got a good message and you combine that with the broad theory across this country, anger with Trump, uh, you can break through in places where folks didn't think you could. Uh, this opens up huge possibilities politically as regards 2018. Well, we should just note that the Republicans have some women candidates, too. And now it's time for your Minnesota moment news from my hometown of St. Paul, which is actually just about a 45-minute drive from Patty Shackner's district in Wisconsin. That's right. Uh, Michelle Bachman, the one-time presidential candidate of the Tea Party, who represented the Minneapolis suburbs in the House but then resigned in 2015, she says she has asked God whether she should run for the Senate seat vacated by Al Franken that's now occupied by the Democrat Tina Smith. It was three weeks ago that she made this announcement. We haven't heard from her about God's answer. I wonder if you have any updates on that. Well, as a you know, believer and, and somebody who's who, you know, is, is certainly willing to accept the notion that that people can, in prayer, get messages and at least get a sense of where things are going. Um, I can only assume, I don't know, that Ms. Bachman is, is continuing to wait for the message. Um, and so taking it out of the religious context, let me just suggest that uh, I certainly hope she runs. I think, uh, you know, I think that would be quite fascinating to have Michelle Bachman as the Republican nominee uh, in Minnesota. Uh, against, you know, presumably a Democrat who might actually be, mm, I don't know, sane. <laughs> yes, I think you're. I think you're right. I think the the DFL, as we call the Democratic Party in Minnesota, the, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. I bet they would love to run Tina Smith against Michelle Bachman. I think they'd probably pass the petitions for <laughs> Michelle Bachman. <laughs>
What about the politics here? Are is is there still a battle between the Clinton Democrats and the Bernie Democrats over who will represent the party in these uh, in these new challenges? Sure, absolutely. Um, that exists. It's a it's a phenomenon. I'd be a little careful about calling it Clinton Democrats versus Bernie Democrats. I think it's there's a a, a deeper reality, uh, and it, it goes beyond personalities. The Democratic Party has always had divisions between its progressive wing and its more moderate, more compromising wing. Uh, we're going to see some of that. There's no question. Uh, in, and I can tell you the, the evidence of that, which is, which is really a big deal. In gubernatorial races across the country, uh, in states where there are Republican governors, in many cases you're seeing seven, eight, nine, ten, even more candidates Many of them, credible candidates, get into those Democratic primaries. So you're going to have a lot of crowded and, and I would argue, impassioned Democratic primary fights. And you know, John, I've covered politics for a very long time. I've never, ever believed that primaries are a problem. I think primaries are where you hone your skills, you get people energized, you rally them. And, uh, you know, I guess you probably hope that people don't tear each other to shreds too much. But, you know, by and large, if I have to choose, right, say, oh, yeah, I want some anointed candidate who's got some friends in Washington or some friends in the state house to be the nominee for governor or for a statewide office or for state legislature uh, versus somebody that the members of the party get excited about and run, run forward. I'll go with the grassroots on that. I'll, I'll say, let's have the primary. And I'll give you a good example from your own state of Minnesota. Okay. There's a, a college professor back now, it's in the better part of 30 years ago, uh, decided he was going to run for the U.S. Senate. He'd never held statewide office. He was running against people who were more prominent, legislators, and, and a, I think it was a state ag commission in the Democratic primary. But he was really good with people. And they nominated that guy, Paul Wellstone, and, and he did okay. <laughs> And we still remember him. He's still the hero of the DFL of Minnesota. And that's what I'm saying is primaries are good. There's one other candidate I want to ask you about, and that is the woman who's running for governor in Maine, Diane Russell. She seems like a remarkably promising candidate. She is quite something. I, I, you know, Most people who are listening to this podcast have seen her. And by the way, I want to tell you, she's one of a number of women running up there in Maine and a number of candidates in that primary. So, you know, due respect to all the contenders. But uh, Diane Russell got a lot of attention back in 2016. She gave an incredibly strong uh, speech to the Democratic National Convention. And it was a, it, she was a Bernie delegate to the convention, a Bernie Sanders delegate. But she gave a speech calling for unity as well as reform of the party's nominating process. And uh, the energy that she brought to it, uh, the reaction of the crowd, uh, even, by the way, not just Bernie backers, but, but a number of Clinton backers, really marked her as somebody who's got some skills, some very strong skills for communicating. And she's a veteran state legislator uh, who she lost a race a couple years ago, so she's not going to win every contest. She went down and she got very involved in a lot of uh, nuclear disarmament issues, a host of other things. And she came back to Maine this year or last year and decided to run a, a true grassroots, um, you know, 
in the streets and in the quarters of power campaign for governor. She's campaigned very strong on uh, legalization of marijuana and voting reform and, and a whole bunch of democracy issues. Very, very interesting candidate. One of many up there, in, in fairness. But what she did that, that got my attention was that she sent a message out right before the, these massive women's marches that we saw uh, around the time of the anniversary of Trump's uh, inauguration. And her message was, we march, dot, 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 into office. Hmm. Sounds great. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, thanks so much. Always great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure, my friend. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for something completely different. Fortress America is crumbling, thanks in part at least to Donald Trump. For that, we turn to Alfred McCoy. He's the J.R.W. Smale Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the author most recently of the book In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. He's also a regular contributor to The Nation and to Tom Dispatch. Al McCoy, welcome back. Thank you, John. The decline of American global power that you've been writing about lately didn't begin on January 20th, 2017, when Trump took the oath of office. There were already signs of it before that day. Let's talk about what happened before Trump. Well, first of all, the United States had probably about half of the world economy at the end of World War II. By 1960, we were down to 40% of the world economy. Recently, depending on how you measure it, it's around 20%. And if you take the more objective index of, of purchasing power parity, in other words, how much is a, a, a dollar buy you in China versus how much it buys in the United States, we have about 15% of the global economy. And as our, our share of the global economy has declined, so has our, our raw international power. And so the U.S. influence in the world was fading. Uh, quite markedly, <clears throat> even before Trump was taking power. So therefore, uh, if you will, the U.S. international leadership is no longer a given based upon, if you will, the undeniable fact of American economic and military supremacy. As American power fades, leadership becomes ever more paramount, ever more important into maximizing the remaining U.S. power on the international stage. And that's why leadership has proved so important in the last 10, 15 years in U.S. political history. Of course, it's China whose power is uh, looming uh, over the United States right now. In At Tom Dispatch and in The Nation, you write about a new Silk Road under construction. I didn't know about this. I, I get ads inviting me on guided tours of the Silk Road, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, and Kazakhstan. 
they say it's exotic and ancient and that visiting there is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. What, what's the new Silk Road you're talking about? Initially, when China joined the World Trade Organization in 2002, everybody thought that China was going to join the international community on our terms. They would make nice, we just buy them into the system, and they will accept the system as it is, and they will, they will, they will play well in groups, okay? And <clears throat> China, once it got its footing internationally, began to do otherwise. China devised a, a, a sophisticated two-part strategy for demolishing U.S. global power. Uh, the one thing I think you have to understand is that beneath that massive economic and military apparatus that the United States built for the exercise of global dominion after World War II, it rested on, on very strong geopolitical foundations. As the historian at Oxford, John Darwin, has written, the United States was the first power in 600 years to control the axial ends of Eurasia. It was the first power to actually dominate the whole of the Eurasian continent from our NATO alliance in Western Europe and through four bilateral trade pacts running from Japan through South Korea, the Philippines, all the way down to Australia. And then between these two axial points, we laid down, if you will, circles of steel, uh, multilateral military pacts, three great fleets, the uh, the sixth fleet in the Mediterranean, the fifth fleet in the Persian Gulf, and the seventh fleet in the Pacific. Hundreds of military bases, and in the last ten years, we've built sixty drone bases stretching from Sicily to Guam in the Pacific. And China had the idea that they could break the U.S. dominion over the Eurasian landmass through a two-part strategy. One, they began building in the last couple of years seven bases in the South China Sea. They spent $200 billion to build a modern port, transforming the sleepy fishing village of Guador into a, a, a modern port on the Arabian Sea. They just opened last year a port uh, in a facility in Djibouti at the other end of the Arabian Sea. But more fundamentally, China made about $4 trillion from the time they entered the World Trade Organization in 2002. And they spent more or less about a trillion dollars laying down this massive infrastructure of rails, gas pipelines, oil pipelines, to transform Europe and Asia from two continents, which is anomalous because it's the only continent on the planet in which a unitary landmass is divided into two continents, and that's because of the, the empties thousands of miles at the center of Eurasia. Well, China's laying down this massive trillion-dollar infrastructure that's going to stretch from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and that will unify Eurasia. Moreover, they've they've invested another trillion dollars uh, by 2025, investing in Africa, inning that, integrating to that, and they will be forming Europe, Africa, and Asia into a unitary market, a unitary landmass the center of the world economy and the center of geopolitical power. That's their grand vision. Now we get to Donald Trump. Of course, he ran for office saying he would get a better deal from China. How's that working out? Uh, uh, Trump, almost as if by some malign design, uh, seems to be setting out to to damage, uh, if not destroy, this this 
architecture of U.S. geopolitical power. Uh, last year, Trump made two major international trips. He made two trips, okay? His first trip in May, he went to Europe. He visited NATO headquarters. He attacked our NATO allies for failing to pay their fair share of of defense expenses, but more fundamentally, when he was at NATO headquarters, he refused to affirm the uh, the, the principle of common defense, i.e. one NATO member is attacked, NATO defends that member. Without the principle of common defense, NATO isn't NATO. Trump refused to defend that principle. Uh, he's since, you know, said, oh, yes, of course, you know, the White House said, yes, we, we mean it, but that 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 refusal to make that statement in, uh, when he was visiting NATO headquarters in, in Brussels just sent shockwaves throughout Europe. Suddenly, Europe was aware, as as Angela Merkel said in the aftermath of Trump's visit, that Germany and Europe must chart their own destiny. And then in November, he visited Asia. He made his grand 12-day tour of Asia, and uh, <clears throat> he behaved very nicely and politely until he came to the. Asia-Pacific Economic uh, uh, Cooperation Meeting in Vietnam at the end of his tour, and he, he started attacking multilateral trade pacts. Um, and everybody was aware that when Trump came into office, he canceled something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a pact of 12 nations that was designed by President Obama to redirect 40% of world trade away from China across the Pacific towards the United States. And uh, Trump canceled that pact in his first week in office. He now attacked, the whole, at, at that Vietnam meeting, he attacked the whole idea of multilateral trade pacts. And in a kind of rejoinder to Trump, the other 11 members of the Trans-Pacific Pact announced at that same meeting that they were reviving the pact, that they were making steps to move forward without the United States. China also appeared at uh, at that Vietnam meeting. Uh, Xi Jinping gave a fulsome uh, speech embracing international trade, and China is pushing its own 16-nation regional cooperation trade pact to pull all that trade away from the United States and towards China. So, in effect, <clears throat> Trump has damaged, if you will, the two key pillars of U.S. geopolitical power kind of hammer blows against them, damaging NATO and Western Europe and damaging those multilateral relations with the Asia-Pacific powers. The other thing that Trump set out to do was to enlist Chinese help in setting limits on North Korean threats to the United States. How's that worked out? Um, China... I think has played a very sophisticated and long-term strategic hand. Uh, they, they've, they, if you will, you signaled to Trump and have indicated to Trump that they're going to cooperate. The Washington or, or Trump strategy is kind of a triangulation strategy. Okay, in other words, we shove Be uh, we, 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 we nudge Beijing, and then Beijing pushes Pyongyang, and Pyongyang, North Korea stops its missile tests, and moves towards disarmament. That's the whole theory. And so <clears throat> this puts China, in a, in a, if you will, in a, in a superb bargaining position. So they make these gestures towards getting uh, uh, North Korea to, to stop their nuclear tests. They send emissaries. They, 
They, pro- they cooperate with the sanctions. On the other hand, China is playing a much longer-term diplomatic hand, which has two parts. First of all, pushing the U.S. military out of South Korea, driving a wedge between uh, South Korea and the United States, uh, getting the U.S. military off the Korean Peninsula long-term, short-term, <clears throat> ending the joint U.S.-Korean uh, military operations. Also, China is playing upon this to stop U.S. economic pressures on China. The Trump promised he was going to equalize trade and all that. And also, very importantly, getting the United States to back away from defending freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. Uh, China has built seven bases, transforming through dredging atolls in the South China Sea and the Spratly Islands into military bases. Uh, in 2016, the, the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague ruled against China, said that those atolls gave China no claim to territory. Well, China has actually got something called the Nine-Dash Line. China isn't just claiming claim to those bases. China claims that the South China Sea, this international waterway that's the home to $5 trillion in world trade, that, that that's Chinese sovereign territory. That's their claim. They're claiming claim to an ocean uh, as sovereign territory. The United States under President Obama challenged China by very aggressive freedom of navigation patrols. And under Trump, there have been no major freedom of navigation patrols for the past six months. In effect, we've ceded the South China Sea to China. Yeah, so so in other words, China has played a long, clever diplomatic hand while Washington under Trump has been focused obsessively and narrowly on the North Korea issue, and China's winning. Last question. I think a lot of our friends on the American left would initially be happy at the idea that America's imperial power was waning, but would a world under Chinese hegemony be better for the United States or for the rest of the world? Remember I talked when we started this interview about that delicate duality of U.S. power, on the one hand, a world of sovereign states uh, enshrined in the United Nations, governed by the rule of law, that advocates human rights, uh, international trade, uh, shared progress and prosperity, okay, along with the, the raw U.S. military and economic power, the grim reality of U.S. hegemony, okay? <clears throat> so when people talk about U.S. decline and people on the left, you know, think that maybe that's not a bad thing. What they're thinking about is the grim side of the equation. The U.S. military bases, the nuclear force, the U.S. special forces operating as they are now in about 75% of the nations around the world, all that, okay? What, what they don't realize is that, as, if that if that grim power fades too quickly, it's very likely that the more liberal aspect of that delicate duality, the U.N., the international rule of law, the commitment to human rights, woman rights, to share peace and prosperity, but that too will decline. Because China, as Edward Wong said in his review, uh, he's the former New York Times correspondent, did a review of China's rise to geopolitical power, and it said that basically what China is, is, is standing for right now is blackmail, bribery, and raw realpolitik pressure that undercuts this more liberal side of that delicate duality. So 
if the U.S. declines too quickly, too readily, creates a vacuum and China moves in on its own terms, it could be a, a less equitable world instead of a more equitable world. Alfred McCoy, he wrote about the crumbling of Fortress America for the nation in Tom Dispatch. Thank you, Al. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Trump Watch. Today's show was recorded by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. Special thanks to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. I'm John Wiener. The Trump Watch podcast returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. <laughs>